This is a Bar Crawl Radio Extra. Rhonda Roland Shearer was a first responder for the World Trade Center first responders directly after the attack on September 11, 2001. At the time, she and her daughter, London, handed out a million dollars in PPE, construction helmets, bolt cutters, and other essential equipment that supported those who worked on the pit. In Barker Radio number 119, Rhonda tells this story and talks about her recent efforts at supplying PPE and other life-saving materials to hospital workers in New York City. For this Barker Radio Extra, Ms. Shear talks about her other interests as a sculptor of women's subjects, media ethics reporter, and her work with her scientist husband, Stephen J. Gould, for their Arts Science Research Laboratory. We began by talking about revolutions in art, influenced by Marcel Duchamp and fractals, which influences modern art, and the basic differences between male and female geometries. This Arts Science Research Lab, which you created along with your husband, Stephen J. Gould, uh, a uh, somewhat famous scientist uh, yes. who had written a lot. And I, I just quote from the um, Arts Science Research Lab, because I'd never heard of it before. It's here in Manhattan, committed to the creation of intellectual environments and advocacy of interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary study, where art historians, scientists, artists, designers, and programmers work together. Now, that's a, a bunch of stuff that, that's, that's yeah. put together. What is the ASRL? Well, it's evolved over time. The, uh, right now, it's the not-for-profit that's sponsoring Cut Red Tape for Heroes. That is certainly the center of this conversation. But we also wanted to get a look at what else you do, because you're not just this person who hands out PPE. I mean, that's what you're doing now. Who knows what mm -hmm. you're going to be doing next year. <laughs> but you started talking a little bit about your uh, influence, and I guess you and your husband were influenced by Marcel Duchamp. Uh, can you say something about that in the ready-made? And then I'd like to also talk about your work with media ethics. So Marcel Duchamp, let's start there. It was uh, something as an artist I was always uh, deeply interested in was what was the uh, catalyst for, for revolutions in art? Because as an artist, you don't want to be repeating other people's experiments. It's like science. If you are repeating uh, other people's science, you're not doing original science and you're forever a student. Same in art. Unless you're making breakthroughs, then, uh, then you are quite limited in what vision you can bring forth and having maximal uh, impact. Right. And Duchamp uh, and so, was always changing. I mean, he always, and I think we know Duchamp because of the wheel, the upside down bicycle wheel. I mean, people know right. about Duchamp through that, but he did a lot of other stuff. Well, he was at the forefront. He and his brothers were at the forefront of Cubism. So the first revolution in art was Renaissance perspective, where you went from medieval uh, iconography, where it's symbolic. You'd have, say, Jesus is large and his feet would be on top of sinners, and then you'd have saints at the top. So it was top-down, large-small hierarchy. So it's a visual language. So all of a sudden, you had 
Renaissance perspective, and this was very close to how we see the world. It was, you can imagine, miraculous to have this change in imagery that you would have to see in people's homes or in churches. It must have been great theater to have this revolution. And it was a geometry behind that. So the geometry itself, perspective, that can't be really credited to any artist, was fundamental to that first major revolution in art, in art history, where it's a quantitative change that you can visually see. And then you had Cubism. That was the second revolution. And with Cubism, Marcel Duchamp and his brothers were at the forefront. And what that was was a rejection of perspective. And artists were thinking in terms of what is called non-Euclidean geometry or the fourth dimension. This is very established. Um, Linda Henderson uh, wrote a very uh, good book on how non-Euclidean geometry was what inspired the revolution of modern art, not uh, quantum mechanics. She made an excellent uh, study of that. And uh, so I was interested because I thought if the two greatest revolutions in art are uh, at the same time of revolutions in geometry, then maybe there's something very potent, potent for artists to think about that you need to uh, you to think about new geometries of your time. And then maybe that is an elixir for finding uh, or discovering something new. So that was really my thinking. And the geometry that was new during our recent years is called fractal geometry, which is the geometry of nature. In other words, you don't have a word for the shapes of clouds or fire uh, or even shapes of trees. Those are their branching patterns. We know that small, like in a broccoli where the little piece looks like the little bit bigger piece and, and so forth, different scales of shapes. And um, Benoit Mandelbrot in the 60s, uh, whose last post was at Yale, was the discoverer and developer of what's called fractal geometry, where there's two aspects of it. One is this fractal uh, uh, scaling, which means you have a shape in nature uh, where it's similar. It has what's called self-similarity. It's not exact, it's similar, but across multiple scales from small to large. So if you take a photo of a tree branch, unless you know the scale, you can get very confused. It might be very small, but it could, or it could be huge. You know, you, you don't know. There has to be some kind of scale to know. So this was very of interest to a lot of people in art and architecture because it's dealing with another way of looking at fundamental laws of nature and shapes. But what was, what was interesting to me, if in fact you can make a tree or even a mountain or a landscape out of a rational geometry, this blows apart that bias that you have this dualism where organic uh, shapes are irrational and feminine versus the masculine rational shapes of uh, wait. Of I have to. Say, I have to. I have to say something. This is probably pretty sure. ignorant, but I'm a, a teacher. I teach geometry, and I teach the students that geometry means measurement of the earth. 
right? And when I think of it, I'm an elementary school teacher, by the way, not a high school or a college teacher. But um, when I think of it, I do think of rocks. I think of the shape of the earth, but I never think of, you know, our natural world, our um, plants, and it's that's very As fascinating. As having shape. Yes. Or, right. uh, yeah. A quality. Because it, yeah, because really, it because it is a fundamental teaching element to go into having uh, people look at shapes. What what are or what are we looking at? That's a fundamental question, and right. and, a, and an analysis, but. You a straight line or a square are exceptions in nature. Those right. are exceptions. Right. Yeah. And um, you have them like you have uh, crystals. You have the horizon. Um, but even with the horizon, you'll see a slight, you know, curve. But it, uh, let's say it's a it's a line. But most of nature is messy. But yet within that are patterns. Oh, look at so, the beehive. Yeah, that's true too. And so just like we have 12 uh, tones that are, are uh, and a limited amount of notes to make all the music, it's, when you think about it, it's a limited number of notes that, make, that generate all the music in the world, billions of pieces of music in combinations that are uh, novel, make all music. Well, nature is similar. You have the meander, you have the branching pattern. Um, there are a constrained amount of shapes that make all of nature. So if you look at it, that old medieval idea that the rocks are alive and not dead um, is not irrational through this lens in that branching patterns of rivers are just like our vascular system, you of know, uh, and our, our, uh, our bodies, our very bodies are made of these uh, constrained patterns, branching patterns and trees. So we share that. So inorganic and organic share these shapes, which is kind of mysterious because how is it? it and people speculate that this has to do something with the constraints of space and uh, time and nature itself that you would share with inorganic the, the same shapes in organic shapes. It's it's um, right. it's it's very compelling. I think it is, and that's another side of of, you. of, of, of Rhonda Sharer. Yeah. You also deal with media ethics. Is this an ongoing thing? The I Media Ethics website. Well, I read I've some put, interesting I've, articles there. Well, I've put that. Uh, we've paused it, especially with the pandemic. It's very difficult right now with any media. Right. It, it's uh, for funding because we have a, a, a value system where we can't take money from foundations or media outlets because then that creates a conflict. That's the, the stand that we've taken. Other not for profit uh, publications do take money from the media industry, but we won't. So it, it just has become very difficult. And our focus now. So we've for now, we have it in pause. And, and the major mission of it was just to have a resource for students of the different categories of things that are in the news about uh, uh, media ethics issues like plagiarism or conflict of interest. We're telling the uh, truth. Yeah, well, yes. Well, okay. And, and, then, and then the other is we did specialize in defending and, and uh, 
or examining or exploring issues related to the poor and powerless that had to uh, deal with media reporting about them that was inaccurate or unethical. So that we specialized in. Or inefficient. Not There's hardly enough done on it. Mm. And, and it really is true that uh, it's, uh, there is a, um, the, it, it, I think the, the state of the media now where uh, with online versus print and the, the loss of revenue in terms of advertising and the disaster of that just has turned everything on its head. It's very difficult for all media now and for journalists to have jobs and, and so forth. So we suffer the same fate, but worse, because we have no advertising, no subscribers, because we want to be free. And, uh, and we won't take money from uh, anybody related to media or any foundation related to media. So that, that really limits it. And uh, it's difficult for me to self-fund it. And uh, so we've just twilighted it for now, and then we'll, we'll see in the future. Yeah, maybe so, you'll get back to it. I have a question about something that we're interested in here. What do you believe? Do you think that media personalities, media reporters, etc., should be very upfront with their bias? I would frame it this way, okay. that just as if you're a lawyer, you better not reveal... Uh, evidence or um, anything that is counter to your client's interests. You know, you must uh, not uh, reveal it, right? And so, but and a, a PR person has the same kind of uh, obligation. And if you're a paid advocate, you also have a distaste, if not an obligation, to not reveal counter evidence. And uh, but journalism is supposed to be where you trust the process, where you don't have to say, like I've heard in the past, even years ago, well, I, I really don't want to report on that because it'll help the bad guy. You know? And the problem with that is, is it's too difficult to control and you can create distrust very easily. It's, it's more like trusting the process of seeking truth and it'll work out. You know, that's my belief. Maybe it's naive. But um, I think that uh, if you're uh, pulling punches or holding back context or not really looking into things, um, uh, you know, there's, there's so many. When you've been and seen how the sausage is made, you know, when we do in investigations or reporting, we're very thorough. We always call every person involved and and say so so all so the reader knows we've called everyone and they've all had an opportunity to respond and we'll even hold up stories uh that sometimes the the, the target or the source of the story will usurp your position of being the first to publish but you you just have to take that where i'd rather ask them a hundred questions that so they have an opportunity they're not surprised one thing that's good, my phone number, everything's online. We've never had, um, I've never had even crank calls because we treat people with respect. Because even if they're wrong and they're caught, we go the extra 10 miles that they, 
seeking mitigating circumstances, seeking their view, respect of people. That's a key thing. Because if you're disrespectful, that's what makes people mad, you know, and angry and upset. So even so, if you really go the extra 10 miles uh, and um, give them an opportunity and explore and say, well, what about this? What about that? Then you've really done a, a very thorough job. And, uh, and it's, I think the key word for me is respect. You may hate what a someone does. You may hate it. But if you don't, uh, if you start to hate the general category of someone, it's very dangerous business, you know. And uh, you know, I think as we get to know people, then it, it changes our world. Like I've had such with this cut red tape for heroes, it's been such a privilege because I've been so many housing projects working with Bronx leadership. Look, I'm in my isolated community in Soho. I'd never have an opportunity to make new friends, be in those communities, see what they are doing, get to know them. It's been fantastic. And we want to thank Rhonda Roland Shearer for sharing an hour with us on Bark Roll Radio. Be sure to check out our longer conversation with Rhonda in which she discusses her experiences at the World Trade Center pit and her work in supplying PPE to hospital workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. <laughs>